I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's March 7th, 2017. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing on the nomination of Rod Rosenstein to be the Deputy Attorney General. Rosenstein's whole career has been leading up to this moment. He's a nonpartisan sort of guy. He served under both President Bush and Obama. Now he's being elevated to the role of running the day-to-day at DOJ. But this hearing is about more than just confirming a new Deputy Attorney General. On March 2nd, five days earlier, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had announced his recusal from all investigations involving the 2016 election a recusal which included the Russia investigation. And so, the moment he becomes deputy, Rosenstein will also become the acting attorney general for the purposes of the Russia investigation. He doesn't mention it in his opening statement, but he says he wants Congress to know how seriously he takes this role. Senators, before taking on a position of this solemn responsibility, it's important to know who you are and what you stand for. My oath is an obligation. It requires me to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, to bear full faith and allegiance to the Constitution, and to well and faithfully discharge the duties of my office. As you know, I've taken that oath a few times. I've administered that oath many times. I know it by heart. I understand what it means, and I intend to honor it. Rosenstein is confirmed and he's sworn in on April 26, 2017. But his oath is about to be tested like never before. Less than two weeks later, President Trump says he wants to fire the FBI director, and Rosenstein decides to help. This is The Report. Episode 10, You're Fired. The last episode told the story of President Trump's early interactions with FBI Director Jim Comey, set against the mounting problems of the new national security advisor, Michael Flynn. This episode traces Trump's growing discomfort with Comey until it boils over. But before Trump gets to Comey, there's another senior law enforcement officer who's becoming a problem for the new president. That person is Jeff Sessions. The attorney general's recusal from oversight of the Russia investigation turns out to be one of the fateful decisions over the course of our story. In the end, it destroys Trump's relationship with his attorney general. But things between Trump and Sessions hadn't started out so bad. Here's Matt Zapatowski of The Washington Post. 
Senator Sessions is the first senator to endorse Trump when Trump is just a candidate on the campaign trail and most people view him as having a very remote shot of becoming president. He kind of famously dons this red Make America Great Again hat at a rally. And at that time and throughout the campaign, their relationship is viewed as pretty good. Sessions is a guy who lends Trump some credibility. This is a a real senator who is endorsing, you know, a reality TV sort a candidate. I am pleased to endorse Donald Trump for the presidency of the United States. When Trump wins the election, he rewards Sessions's early loyalty by naming him attorney general. But the honeymoon doesn't last long. So fast forward to um, the Russia investigation becoming public and Sessions having to weigh whether he should recuse from that. He was a very vigorous campaign backer, as I mentioned, of President Trump. He actually ran this foreign policy sort of group on the Trump campaign. So Sessions has to weigh whether to recuse. Sessions has been involved in the Trump campaign. And so, from the very beginning, he's under pressure to recuse himself from investigations into the campaign and the president. During the attorney general's confirmation hearing, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse asks the question on everyone's mind. Will the Department of Justice and the FBI under your administration be allowed to continue to investigate the Russian connection, even if it leads to the Trump campaign and Trump interests and associates? And can you assure us that in any conflict between the political interests of the president and the interests of justice, you will follow the interests of justice, even if your duties require the investigation and even prosecution of the president, his family, and associates? Sessions is trying to avoid making specific promises about recusal, but he says he'll follow the rules. And there's a procedure for that which I would follow. You don't want to be in a position where every time an issue comes up, the attorney general accuses himself. But at the same time, serious questions, when they arise, uh, the attorney general should recuse himself on the, on the appropriate circumstances. Sessions indicates to the Senate that he'll follow the advice of career ethics officials on recusal. Former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara notes that this is fairly routine. You know, generally speaking, recusal is something that requires consultation with, and usually, if I think you're being smart about it, acquiescence in the recommendation made by career ethics officials within the department. Sessions's performance is good enough. He's confirmed and takes office on February 9th. By late that month, career officials at the Justice Department are working to determine whether or not Sessions needs to recuse himself. The fundamental question is of fairness and neutrality. There are some things that are real serious, actual, legal, ethical conflict, meaning you're trying to make a decision on a matter that directly affects some stockholding you have or some family interest, uh, and that's an unquestionable conflict. But there's also a category that's more common where the appearance of a conflict, the, the, the appearance of impropriety, is something that causes you to recuse yourself because the important thing for, for the administration of justice is not only that justice be done, but that it be seen to be done. It is often the case that career ethics officials will tell you to recuse yourself so that there's no doubt in the mind of the public that you're making the decisions based on what the law requires and what the facts suggest. Career officials haven't yet made a recommendation, though it's pretty obvious that some recusal is going to be necessary. Trump has even been warned about it when he first picked Sessions. But the question of recusal soon becomes more urgent. On March 1st, less than a month into his tenure, 
The press reports that Sessions has not been fully candid in Senate testimony about his contacts with Russians during the campaign. We at the Washington Post report that contrary to what he said at his confirmation hearing, he claimed, look, I, I had no interactions with Russians on the campaign trail. He's kind of asked in the moment about this CNN story about contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And he says, I've been called a surrogate a time or two, uh, and I didn't have any contacts with Russians. That wasn't true. As a senator, he had met or conversed twice with Sergei Kislyak, who was Russia's ambassador. They had apparently talked about campaign issues. So what he said in his Senate testimony wasn't true. And that story, when that story broke, it really increased public pressure on him to recuse. Sessions has already said that he plans to follow the advice of career officials. And it now seems inevitable that those officials are going to say he needs to recuse. The same day the story breaks about Sessions' interaction with Kislyak, the president reaches out to Jim Comey just to chat. Here's how Mueller describes it. The report, as always, is being read or paraphrased by Benjamin Wittes. On March 1st, the president called Comey and said he wanted to check in and see how Comey was doing. According to an email Comey sent to his chief of staff after the call, the president talked about Sessions a bit said he heard Comey was doing great and said he hoped Comey would come by to say hello when he was at the White House. Comey interpreted the call as an effort by the president to, quote, pull him in, unquote, but he did not perceive the call as an attempt by the president to find out what Comey was doing with the Flynn investigation. On March 2nd, the president, alarmed at the possibility of Sessions's recusal, tries to stop it. Trump wants Sessions, who's always been loyal, to oversee the investigation. On the morning of March 2nd, the president urged McGahn to contact Sessions to tell him not to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Sessions told McGahn that he intended to follow the rules on recusal. McGahn reported back to the president about the call with Sessions, and the president reiterated that he did not want Sessions to recuse. Throughout the day, McGahn continued trying on behalf of the president to avert Sessions' recusal by speaking to Sessions' personal counsel, Sessions' chief of staff and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and by contacting Sessions himself two more times. Sessions recalled that other White House advisors also called him that day to argue against his recusal. Clearly, the president is aware that this is a question that Sessions uh, is wrestling with. So he has his White House counsel, Don McGahn, essentially try to feel Sessions out and convince him that he shouldn't recuse. Like Donald Trump is trying to get ahead of this before he ever will apply pressure to him afterwards to unrecuse. He's trying to prevent this from happening in the first place. So he tells Don McGahn essentially to tell Sessions don't do this. Uh, but at the end of the day, Sessions kind of sees it as a no-brainer. The career ethics officials say this. How can he supervise an investigation of the campaign when he was on the campaign? By his account, career ethics officials tell him to recuse. He has no choice. And so he does. 
That afternoon, Sessions announced his decision to recuse from any existing or future investigations of any matters related in any way to the campaigns for President of the United States. Sessions got the impression, based on calls he received from White House officials, that the President was very upset with him and did not think he had done his duty as Attorney General. I have now decided to recuse myself from any existing or future investigations of any matter relating in any way to the campaigns for President of the United States. Preet Bharara agrees this wasn't a close call. Jeff Sessions, I think, did the right thing, uh, both because it was seemed appropriate to recuse given how involved he was in the campaign uh, and had other entanglements apparently with people from Russia during the course of the campaign, um, but also he made a promise that he will heed the advice of career ethics officials within the department. Now, having having taken that position, I think he had no choice when he got the advice that he should recuse himself that he did so. So he ultimately does recuse, and uh, you know Trump loses his mind. Shortly after Sessions announced his recusal, the White House Counsel's Office directed that Sessions should not be contacted about the matter. Internal White House Counsel's Office notes from March 2, 2017, state. No contact with Sessions and no comms, serious concerns about obstruction. Trump is furious at the development. He tries to convince Sessions to change his mind. So once Jeff Sessions decides to recuse, he sticks to his guns. Here, once there's been a publicly stated decision to recuse yourself and the president uh, tries to put pressure on you directly and through intermediaries to unrecuse yourself, that sets off a lot of alarm bells. Trump makes no secret of how angry he is with Sessions. And he doesn't hide the reason why, either. On March 3rd, the day after Sessions' recusal, McGahn was called into the Oval Office. Other advisors were there, including Priebus and Bannon. The president opened the conversation by saying, I don't have a lawyer. The president expressed anger at McGahn about the recusal and brought up Roy Cohn, stating that he wished Cohn was his attorney. Trump says this to his kind of advisors and to Sessions directly, that he expects his attorney general to be a loyalist. He cites this mob lawyer named Roy Cohn. He wishes that his attorney general was like that. The president wanted McGahn to talk to Sessions about the recusal, but McGahn told the president that DOJ ethics officials had weighed in on Sessions's decision to recuse. The president then brought up former attorneys general Robert Kennedy and Eric Holder and said they had protected their presidents. The president also pushed back on the DOJ contacts policy and said words to the effect of, you're telling me that Bobby and Jack didn't talk about investigations or Obama didn't tell Eric Holder who to investigate? Um, he cites Eric Holder, who had kind of a famously close relationship with President Obama. He doesn't see his attorney general as kind of the chief law enforcement officer of the country. He sees his attorney general as his chief legal protector. And he's not shy about saying that. President Trump seems to see an attorney general who is going to function like his personal lawyer, who is going to protect him, who is maybe going to investigate those he wants investigated and protect him from investigations that he doesn't want to touch him. That's what he had kind of wished Sessions had done for him and saw Sessions stepping aside as, you know, preventing that from happening. Trump's lawyers warn him that discussing the matter with Sessions further raises serious concerns about obstruction of justice. 
But the president is determined to get a different outcome. That weekend, Sessions and McGahn flew to Mar-a-Lago to meet with the president. Sessions recalled that the president pulled him aside to speak to him alone and suggested that Sessions should unrecuse from the Russia investigation. Sessions said he had the impression that the president feared that the investigation could spin out of control and disrupt his ability to govern, which Sessions could have helped avert if he were still overseeing it. Mueller specifically evaluates the question of whether Trump's efforts to pressure Sessions not to recuse and then to reverse his recusal constitute obstruction of justice. The evidence shows that the president was focused on the Russia investigation's implications for his presidency and specifically on dispelling any suggestion that he was under investigation or had links to Russia. Here's Preet Bharara. The president himself presumably has something to gain from the change in the recusal. When we talk about recusing and not recusing, we often fail to focus on why uh, it is bizarre and inappropriate fundamentally for the president to be asking for such a thing. He's doing that because he presumes that Jeff Sessions, if unrecused, would go out of his way to protect the president. So the whole idea of having him unrecuse himself is not just, I mean, that by itself is bad, but coupled with what the clear intent of the president was in having his own hand-picked attorney general be unrecused to protect him from harm, that harm being, you know, allegations of misconduct uh, or perhaps even criminal conduct by a special counsel or anyone else. That's what makes it so fundamentally um, terrible. Mueller doesn't offer a clear judgment as to whether Trump's early efforts to prevent Sessions's recusal were obstruction of justice. But he doesn't treat it as a standalone question. He considers it as part of a larger pattern. A good lawyer who go through each of these things, parse them out, uh, and say where the evidence is to support each element of the crime of obstruction. But I think that prosecutors would also uh, talk about the overall pattern. So even if it were the case that, that this group of incidents with respect to, you know, trying to get uh, Jeff Sessions to recuse himself was not itself a standalone count in the indictment, and it may not have been, um, even if the president could have been charged, it is still part of the story. It's still, rel- it's still relevant. It's still probative. I think overall of the president's, uh, you know, eagerness and desire to not be a part of the investigation, uh, for the investigation to go away. Pressure on Sessions is just one piece of a larger pattern. One of the reasons Trump is so worried about who is supervising the investigation is the ongoing inquiry into his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who's been pushed out just two weeks prior. After all, if investigators are looking at Flynn, they might be looking at others in the campaign as well. Trump has already told Comey to let Flynn go, but it doesn't seem like the FBI director is getting the message. On March 5th, 2017, the White House Counsel's Office was informed that the FBI was asking for transition period records relating to Flynn, indicating that the FBI was still actively investigating him. On March 6th, the president told advisors he wanted to call the acting attorney general to find out whether the White House or the president was being investigated, although it is not clear whether the president knew at the time of the FBI's recent request concerning Flynn. On March 9th, Comey briefs the Gang of Eight on the investigation and tells them who are the primary subjects. It isn't clear whether Trump learns about it at the time, Though White House counsel notes from March 12th say that Trump is, quote, in a panic and chaos over Russia. But then, on March 20th, 
Comey publicly confirms the existence of the FBI Russia investigation in congressional testimony. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government. When asked, Comey refuses to say directly whether or not the president is under investigation. Mr. Director, was Donald Trump under investigation during the campaign? Same answer as before. I'm not going to answer that. Is he under investigation now? I'm not going to answer that. Please don't overinterpret what I've said. As, as the chair and ranking know, we have briefed them in great detail on the subjects of the investigation and what we're doing, but I'm not going to answer about anybody in this forum. But press reports emerge following Comey's testimony that suggests the FBI actually is investigating the president. The president is angry. Notes from the White House Counsel's Office dated March 21, 2017, indicate that the president was, quote, beside himself, unquote, over Comey's testimony. The president called McGahn repeatedly that day to ask him to intervene with the Justice Department, and according to the notes, the president was, quote, getting hotter and hotter. Get rid, question mark? At the president's urging, McGahn contacted acting Deputy Attorney General Dana Bente several times on March 21, 2017, to seek Bente's assistance in having Comey or the Department of Justice correct the misperception that the president was under investigation. Bente said McGahn told him the president was under a cloud and it made it hard for him to govern. Bente recalled telling McGahn that there was no good way to shorten the investigation and attempting to do so could erode confidence in the investigation's conclusions. Bente said McGahn agreed and dropped the issue. The president also sought to speak with Bente directly, but McGahn told the president that Bente did not want to talk with the president about the request to intervene with Comey. Following Comey's testimony, the president immediately starts contacting and sending messages to the acting deputy attorney general, intelligence officials, and to Comey himself, asking for public declarations that the president is not under investigation. On March 22, 2017, the president asked Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats and CIA Director Michael Pompeo to stay behind in the Oval Office after a presidential daily briefing. The president asked them whether they could say publicly that no link existed between him and Russia. Coates responded that the ODNI has nothing to do with investigations. Coates told this office that the president never asked him to speak to Comey about the FBI investigation. Some ODNI staffers, however, had a different recollection of how Coates described the meeting immediately after it occurred. According to senior ODNI official Michael Dempsey, Coates said after the meeting that the president had brought up the Russia investigation and asked him to contact Comey to see if there was a way to get past the investigation, get it over with, end it, or words to that effect. Three days after the meeting in the Oval Office, the president called Coates and again complained about the Russia investigations, saying words to the effect of, quote, I can't do anything with Russia. There's things I'd like to do with Russia, with trade, with ISIS. They're all over me with this, unquote. Coates later testifies to Congress that he never felt pressured about the investigation. 
I have never felt pressure uh, to uh, intervene or interfere in any way and shape with shaping intelligence in a political way uh, or um, in, in relationship all to I'd, an ongoing investigation. All I'd say. Trump also reaches out to the director of the National Security Agency, Admiral Mike Rogers. In the three plus years that I have been the director of the National Security Agency, to the best of my recollection, I have never been directed to do anything I believe to be illegal, immoral, unethical, or inappropriate. And to the best of my recollection, during that same period of service, I do not recall ever feeling pressured to do so. Well, let me ask you specifically, did the president, the reports that are out there, ask you in any way, shape or form, to back off or downplay the Russian investigation? I'm not going to discuss the specifics of conversations with the president of the United States, but I stand by the comment I just made to you, sir. The president's advisors warn him not to contact Comey directly saying that it'll look like he's interfering in investigations. But Trump doesn't listen. On March 30th, he calls the FBI director. Trump says that the cloud of the investigation is impairing his ability to govern. He asks Comey to, quote, lift the cloud. The president says that if some, quote, satellite had done something wrong, that would be good to know. But he hasn't done anything wrong. He urges Comey again to make public that the president isn't under investigation. Here's Senator Dianne Feinstein questioning Comey about that call. Where he, quote, described the Russia investigation as a cloud that was impairing his ability, end quote, as president, and asked you, quote, to lift the cloud, end quote. What, how did you interpret that? And what did you believe he wanted you to do? I interpreted that as he was frustrated that the Russia investigation was taking up so much time and energy, I, I think he meant of the executive branch, but in the, in the public square in general, and it was making it difficult for him to focus on other priorities of his. But what he asked me was actually narrower than that. So I think what he meant by the cloud, and again, I could be wrong, but what I think he meant by the cloud was the entire investigation is, is taking up oxygen and making it hard for me to focus on the things I want to focus on. The ask was to get it out that I, the president, am not personally under investigation. Two weeks later, on April 11th, Trump calls Comey again. And again, he asks Comey to get out that he isn't under investigation. He asks whether Comey has passed along his request about this to the acting deputy attorney general. And he makes an odd statement, saying, quote, because I have been very loyal to you. We had that thing, you know. Comey doesn't respond to this, but the late Senator John McCain presses him in testimony about what it means. Then when the president said to you, you talked about the April 11th phone call, and he said, quote, because I've been very loyal to you, very loyal. We had that thing, you know. Did that arouse your curiosity as what, quote, that thing was? Yes. Why didn't you ask him? It didn't seem to me to be important for the conversation we were having to understand it. I took it to be some, an effort to communicate to me this, that there is a relationship between us where I've been good to you, you should be good to me. Comey is deeply uncomfortable with these exchanges. Here's Mike Schmidt of The New York Times. Comey feels like Trump is trying to influence him, to win him over, to get him particularly to go out and say that Trump's not under investigation. Now, Comey at this point has told the president that he is not a subject of the investigation. And 
Trump feels like publicly the notion is that he is under investigation and he wants someone to clear that up. And Comey's refusing to do that. He's sort of punting and saying you need to talk to the Justice Department and saying that this wouldn't be the right thing to do. And Comey was doing that because he was afraid that if it ever changed, would he have a duty to correct the record? And was it appropriate if someone's campaign was under investigation to say that the person who was in charge of that campaign wasn't under investigation? Trump is trying to get this to happen to get Comey to clear his name publicly. And Comey's not doing it. And that's where sort of the tension, the friction is building between that relationship. Comey complains to Bente that the contacts from the president are inappropriate. Bente tells McGahn that the president's outreaches to Comey are a problem. And Bente tells McGahn that he won't personally issue a statement saying the president isn't being investigated. And he says he won't order Comey to issue one, either. He tells McGahn that doing so could cause the appointment of a special counsel. So is any of this obstruction of justice? Mueller says the president pressured Sessions at a time when he was intensely concerned about the personal implications of the Russia investigation. And the same is true for Trump's interactions with officials like Coates and Rogers and Comey. But the real question is those three elements— Obstructive act, nexus, and intent. Is there an obstructive act? The evidence shows that after Comey's March 20, 2017 testimony, the president repeatedly reached out to intelligence agency leaders to discuss the FBI's investigation. But witnesses had different recollections of the precise contents of those outreaches. What about a nexus to a proceeding? The outreaches came after and were in response to Comey's March 20, 2017 announcement that the FBI, as part of its counterintelligence mission, was conducting an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. And finally, what does the evidence show about the president's intent? The evidence does not establish that the president asked or directed intelligence agency leaders to stop or interfere with the FBI's Russia investigation. But the president's intent in trying to prevent Sessions' recusal and in reaching out to Coates, Pompeo, Rogers, and Comey following Comey's public announcement of the FBI's Russia investigation is nevertheless relevant to understanding what motivated the president's other actions toward the investigation. Evidence indicates that the president was angered by both the existence of the Russia investigation and the public reporting that he was under investigation. Other evidence indicates that the president was concerned about the impact of the Russia investigation on his ability to govern. Most of this is playing out behind the scenes. Trump is pressuring Sessions and Comey and Coates in private. And his outreaches to the Justice Department aren't public either. So, other than a few whispers, Rosenstein might not fully understand what he's walking into when he's sworn in as Deputy Attorney General on April 26th. But he's about to find out. On May 3rd, Comey testifies in front of Congress once again, this time before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Comey refuses to answer any more questions about the Russia investigation. We've confirmed it. The Department of Justice authorized me to confirm that it exists. We're not going to say another word about it until we're done. 
Muller then recounts some of the most famous and vivid scenes in the entire report. Here's MSNBC's Brian Williams reading them directly. In the afternoon after Comey's testimony with President Trump, Don McGahn, Jeff Sessions, and Sessions Chief of Staff Jody Hunt, and we quote, the president asked McGahn how Comey had done in his testimony, and McGahn relayed that Comey had declined to answer questions about whether the president was under investigation. The president became very upset and directed his anger at Sessions. According to notes written by Hunt, the president said, this is terrible, Jeff, it's all because you recused. Attorney General's supposed to be most important appointment. Kennedy appointed his brother, Obama, appointed holder. I appointed you and you recused yourself. You left me on an island. I can't do anything. The report goes on to recount this interview with former White House strategist Steve Bannon. And we quote again, Bannon recalled that the president brought Comey up with him at least eight times in 24 hours on May 3rd and May 4th. 2017. According to Bannon, the president said the same thing each time. He told me three times I'm not under investigation. He's a showboater. He's a grandstander. I don't know any Russians. There was no collusion. Bannon told the president that he could not fire Comey. Bannon also told the president that firing Comey was not going to stop the investigation, cautioning him that he could fire the FBI director, but could not fire the FBI. Still fuming, the president spends the weekend at his golf resort in New Jersey. It's here that Trump makes up his mind. He's going to fire Jim Comey. The weekend before the firing, Trump goes off to Bedminster, his golf club in New Jersey. He's still stewing about Comey because the previous week, Comey had testified before Congress and had for the first time sort of laid out publicly why he made the decisions he had in the email investigation of Hillary Clinton. Comey took a lot of heat there and in the midst of that testimony said that it made him mildly nauseous that he may have had an impact on the election. Look, this is terrible. It makes me mildly nauseous to think that we might have had some impact on the election. But honestly, it wouldn't change the decision. And that offended Trump. And Trump goes off to Bedminster and actually that Friday he was supposed to play golf, but it rained. And Trump watches Comey's testimony from earlier in the week and is all bent out of shape about it and works himself up to the point that he wants to go ahead with the firing. And with Stephen Miller there and talking to Jared Kushner, who was there with him, they begin putting together a firing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Better. 
Even in normal administrations, firing the FBI director is a big deal. And it's very rare. In fact, it's only happened once before. The FBI director serves a 10-year term, a length of time set by Congress, that's designed to insulate him from political interference. This position is different than any ordinary political appointee. And the only other time the president has fired an FBI director, it was following very serious allegations of corruption, and the move had bipartisan support. All that said, it is within the president's power to fire an FBI director, even without a good reason. Now, the funny thing is, is that by the beginning of May of 2017, Comey thought that he had gotten Trump to a good place. He believed he had educated the president and the White House on how they should interact with the FBI, that the president should not be calling his FBI director and talking to him one-on-one on the phone, that he should not be asking him about stuff related to investigations that the FBI is overseeing. Trump demands his aides begin drafting the letter. The president dictated arguments in specific language for the letter. Over the weekend, the president provided several rounds of edits on a draft letter. The president wanted the letter to open with a reference to him not being under investigation. Miller said he believed that fact was important to the president to show that Comey was not being terminated based on the investigation. The final version of the termination letter closely tracked what the president had dictated to Miller. Quote, Dear Director Comey, while I greatly appreciate your informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation concerning the fabricated and politically motivated allegations of a Trump-Russia relationship with respect to the 2016 presidential election, please be informed that I, along with members of both political parties and, most importantly, the American public, have lost faith in you as the director of the FBI and you are hereby terminated." The letter goes on to criticize Comey's judgment and conduct, including his congressional testimony, his handling of the Clinton email investigation, and his failure to hold leakers accountable. On Monday, May 8th, the president assembles his senior advisors at the White House including McGahn, Priebus, and Miller. He tells them he's going to fire Comey, and it isn't up for discussion. By the time Trump arrives back in Washington on Monday, many of his closest aides, like his White House counsel, Don McGahn, are just finding out for the first time that the president has decided to fire his FBI director. And in an Oval Office meeting, this letter is circulated, and McGahn looks down at it and is like, no way. We can't send this letter. It's a ranting, raving Trump diatribe about the awfulness of Comey and the Russia investigation and how Comey handled the Clinton investigation. And what happens is that that letter is never sent. McGahn is able to stop that. McGahn knows he can't stop Trump from firing Comey, but he can't allow the president to send that letter. He tells Trump that he wants to speak with Sessions and Rosenstein to find out what they think about it. At noon, Sessions, Rosenstein, and Hunt met with McGahn at the White House. McGahn said that the president had decided to fire Comey and asked for their views. Sessions and Rosenstein criticized Comey and did not raise concerns about replacing him. McGahn is a bit concerned about Trump taking the move of firing Comey that Monday. And... 
has Rosenstein and the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, come and meet with the president. Now, in the hierarchy, Sessions and Rosenstein are essentially Comey's bosses. McGahn wants Trump to have their blessing to take such a move because there is this Russia investigation. And there are all these other questions going on around the president and his conduct. And Sessions and Rosenstein embrace the idea and say that they think Comey should go too. At 5 o'clock that evening, the president and his advisors meet with Sessions and Rosenstein to talk about Comey. McGahn urges Trump to allow Comey to resign, but the president is adamant. He wants to fire him. The group discussed the possibility that Rosenstein and Sessions could provide a recommendation in writing that Comey should be removed. The president agreed and told Rosenstein to draft a memorandum. The president told Rosenstein to include in his recommendation the fact that Comey had refused to confirm that the president was not personally under investigation, saying, quote, put the Russia stuff in the memo, unquote. Rosenstein responded that the Russia investigation was not the basis of his recommendation, so he did not think Russia should be mentioned. The president told Rosenstein he would appreciate it if Rosenstein put it in his letter anyway. When Rosenstein left the meeting, he knew that Comey would be terminated, and he told DOJ colleagues that his own reasons for replacing Comey were not the president's reasons. Rosenstein is now part of the White House's effort to get rid of the FBI director. It's in that context that he writes this memo that the White House uses the following day when they announce the firing as the rationale for why they're getting rid of Comey. Rosenstein's memo doesn't mention Russia. Instead, he criticizes Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. No one actually believes that the president wants to fire Comey because he's been unfair to Hillary Clinton. But the group agrees that Rosenstein's letter should be the basis of the firing. According to notes from those in the room, they decide that that original letter should, quote, not see the light of day. The president asked Miller to draft a new termination letter and directed Miller to say in the letter that Comey had informed the president three times that he was not under investigation. McGahn, Priebus, and others objected to including that language, but the president insisted that it be included. McGahn, Priebus, and others perceived that language to be the most important part of the letter to the president. When the letter is finalized, Trump directs the press secretary to announce that Comey has been fired. A major development here this evening at the White House. The President of the United States has terminated the director of the FBI, James Comey. Today, President Donald J. Trump informed FBI Director James Comey that he has been terminated and removed from office. President Trump acted based on the clear recommendations of both Deputy Attorney General uh, Rod Rosenstein and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. There's one detail the White House hasn't bothered with. No one's told Jim Comey he's been fired. Here's Josh Campbell, who was Comey's special assistant at the FBI at the time. May 9, 2017 started just like any other day on the director's staff. James Comey was scheduled to fly from Washington down to Florida, and then we would continue on to Los Angeles, where he was to take part in a diversity recruitment event. As we arrived in Los Angeles, the motorcade takes us to the field office, federal building, where Comey, before the event, wants to stop and see the troops. 
He wants to see the employees who are working the investigations. He eventually makes his way into the operations center on the 14th floor of the federal building in Los Angeles. And as he's addressing a crowd of employees, he looks back on the back screen where two televisions are turned on. I got to LA early and visited the field office. And I walked as I always did and visited people at their cubicles and their desks and just thanked them each for their work. And I'm in the middle of saying that and explaining the FBI's mission. I look up and it says in big letters on at least one or two of the screens, it says Comey resigns. And um, there are a lot of hilarious people in the FBI, including close to the director. So I thought it must be a prank. So I turned to my staff and I said, that took a lot of work. And then I went back talking and then it changed and said Comey fired. And so I knew that was not a joke. My team is funny, but they don't try to be that funny. And I said to the now distracted employees who could see from my face something was going on, I said, look, I don't know whether that's true or not, but whether it's true or not doesn't change what I need to say to you. And then I explained to them how important it was that they continue to pursue the mission of the FBI. And then I went to try and find out what was going on. It becomes clear that this isn't a joke at all. Donald Trump has fired his FBI director. So James Comey learned that he had been fired from CNN, not from the president. Once Comey finished speaking, we went to a side office and closed the door and just stood there. He was trying to process what was going on. Again, we didn't even know it was true. We'd only heard it from media reports. Soon word came down that, yes, indeed, the president's personal bodyguard had arrived at FBI headquarters and dropped off a letter at the escort desk. Comey staring out the window at the Hollywood Hills trying to process what, what had just happened. He was now trying to contend not only with being fired, but also the fact that he's learning that the reason ostensibly why he was fired was because of his handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which no one believed. But a letter from Rod Rosenstein and Jeff Sessions uh, had indicated that that was, in fact, the reason why he was being terminated. Campbell says the full impact of what has happened was difficult to grasp in the moment. Over a period of time, we would see a president not only demand loyalty from an FBI director, but then in an unprecedented way attempt to interfere with an FBI investigation. And it was at that point later on when the president inside the Oval Office, one-on-one with Comey, tells him, I hope you can see your way to letting Michael Flynn go, to letting Flynn go. He's a really good guy. And it was at that point, if you step back and look what was taking place, remove the names, but you have a president who's trying to get an FBI director to drop a criminal investigation into one of his staffers at this time now, former staffer, he had been fired. But that interference, again, is something that we haven't seen in the history of the country, um, at least uh, certainly in the modern time. And so that really started to build that unease inside the FBI, that it's not just a president who wants loyalty, but it's a president who's going to take affirmative action to try to influence an investigation. And it wasn't until the firing of James Comey on May the 9th, 2017, that all of this really came full circle. And we saw the consequence of the FBI director failing to do the bidding of the president. Inside the FBI, the agency is wondering, did the president just successfully take this agency out at the knees? And what is going to come of this ongoing investigation? The White House is insisting that Comey's been fired over Clinton, but no one's buying it. The day after the firing, Trump meets with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak in the Oval Office. During that meeting, he brings up Comey. The media subsequently reported that during the May 10th meeting, the president brought up his decision the prior day to terminate Comey, telling Lavrov and Kislyak, quote, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. 
I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. I'm not under investigation, unquote. The president never denied making those statements, and the White House did not dispute the account, instead issuing a statement that said, quote, By grandstanding and politicizing the investigation into Russia's actions, James Comey created unnecessary pressure on our ability to engage and negotiate with Russia. The investigation would have always continued, and obviously the termination of Comey would not have ended it. When McGahn asked the president about his comments to Lavrov, the president said it was good that Comey was fired because that took the pressure off by making it clear that he was not under investigation so he could get more work done. Later that week, my colleagues reported that Trump, in this meeting in the Oval Office right after the Comey firing, had called Comey a nut job and said that by firing Comey, he had relieved great pressure on himself from the Russia investigation. And that sort of jolts the public back into its seat in the sense of was Trump trying to get rid of Comey to end the Russia investigation? Was this part of a larger attempt to shut it down or chill it? And that's not all Trump does in the Oval Office meeting. Here's Washington Post reporter Greg Miller. The optics of this are crazy. The idea that he's having this meeting at the Oval Office is astonishing in many ways. Kislyak is the guy that Flynn was interacting with that got his national security advisor fired. And here he's bringing him straight into the heart of the American government. So that's crazy in and of itself. Um, shortly thereafter, I start hearing from sources that what they discussed was was deeply troubling, that Trump is kind of bragging to his Russian guests about the great intelligence he gets. And he, and he starts going into some detail about intelligence, about Islamic State cell and all of this highly sensitive material that the U.S. government knows. This meeting is a double whammy. He accomplishes a lot in this meeting. He's not only sharing classified information that he's not supposed to share with a Russian. He makes a crack about Comey, about how he got rid of Comey and um, this cloud that had been hanging over him, this Russia investigation, that's all ended now. Trump may be bragging to the Russians that he fired Comey and it'll relieve the pressure of the investigation, but his press secretary is still insisting that isn't why Comey's been fired. On May 10th, Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Sanders gives a press conference. And most importantly, the rank and file of the FBI had lost confidence in their director. Accordingly, the president accepted the recommendation of his deputy attorney general to remove James Comey from his position. Sarah Sanders, who at the time of the firing was the deputy White House press secretary. And one thing that she did, which really angered the rank and file inside the FBI, was the characterization that came after Comey's firing, where she stood in the White House briefing room and told the world, told the American people told members of the FBI who were watching that James Comey was fired because he was a terrible leader. He wasn't liked within the organization. And she actually went on to say that she had received word from her, in her words, countless FBI employees who were happy with the Trump administration for finally ridding them of James Comey. Now, it was interesting watching these reports inside the FBI because 
people would bellow, would yell at the television. I remember very vividly in words that I won't recount here due to their content, but people who vehemently disagreed with the way she was attempting to describe James Comey to the world. We know it's a lie because she admitted herself. Later on in the Mueller investigation, when questioned under the penalty of perjury, she admitted that none of that was based on anything. In her words, it was baseless. It's been three days of chaos since Comey's been fired. Rosenstein is furious he's been scapegoated by the White House, which is claiming the firing was all his idea. But then, on May 11th, President Trump sits down for an interview with Lester Holt. But regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey, knowing there was no good time to do it. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. And here's what the president says in response to a question about whether he was angry with Comey about the Russia investigation. As far as I'm concerned, I want that thing to be absolutely done properly. When I did this now, I said, I might even lengthen out the investigation, but I have to do the right thing for the American people. He's the wrong man for that position. He's a showboat, he's a grandstander. The FBI has been in turmoil, you know that, I know that, everybody knows that. I don't think that anyone thought that Donald Trump had fired Jim Comey because he was too mean to Hillary Clinton. I don't think anyone really took that seriously. And it comes out in the days after the firing that Trump basically says he was going to fire Comey regardless of what Rosenstein recommended, that he had made this decision up in advance, sort of showing that the memo that had been written by Rosenstein that the White House put out really didn't mean much. In that context, it raises all these other questions about why is it that he really fired Comey. The president has now admitted on television that he intended to fire Comey regardless of what Rosenstein wrote and that one reason was the Russia investigation. Has he admitted to obstructing justice? According to Mueller, the answer is complicated. First, an obstructive act. Does firing Comey impair or impede the investigation? Firing Comey would qualify as an obstructive act if it had the natural and probable effect of interfering with or impeding the investigation. For example, if the termination would have the effect of delaying or disrupting the investigation, or providing the president with the opportunity to appoint a director who would take a different approach to the investigation that the president perceived as more protective of his personal interests. Relevant circumstances bearing on that issue include whether the president's actions had the potential to discourage a successor director or other law enforcement officials in their conduct of the Russia investigation. Those actions had the potential to affect a successor director's conduct of the investigation. The anticipated effect of removing the FBI director, however, would not necessarily be to prevent or impede the FBI from continuing its investigation. As a general matter, FBI investigations run under the operational direction of FBI personnel levels below the FBI director. Bannon made a similar point when he told the president that he could fire the FBI director but could not fire the FBI. In his May 11th interview with Lester Holt, 
The president stated that he understood when he made the decision to fire Comey that the action might prolong the investigation. The president knows when he fires Comey that Flynn is under investigation, so it's easy to establish a nexus to a proceeding. But Mueller's less sure how to treat the issue of intent. There are a lot of reasons why Trump fires Comey, and Russia seems to be one of them. I think they established that there's a lot of paces to believe based on this incident, the firing of Jim Comey, statements the president made about Russia to Lester Holt and others, and the overall pattern that we've been describing that what the president was doing, the motivation for it, his intent, and intent and motivation are different, but here they sort of overlap, that his intent was to make the Russia investigation go away, and that's obstruction. But they also understand and, uh, and contemplate that there were other things that were going on too. I think the Mueller office, you know, somewhat at least, credits is that the President of the United States was really upset that Jim Comey wouldn't say that the President wasn't under investigation. Um, that is not the same thing as wanting the Russian investigation to go away. And so to the extent that you have you know, this other rationale for wanting to fire Jim Comey, that's a point in the President's favor. And then finally, to go back to other points not in the President's favor, you always look at pretext. You always look at lies. And the lie slash pretext in this case, of course, is the very famous presidential White House reliance on the then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein's memo that basically said a basis for firing Jim Comey is how badly Jim Comey treated Hillary Clinton with respect to the email investigation. And the reason I'm laughing a little bit is because it's laughable. So if you decide to fire the FBI director for good and honest reasons, that's one thing. Decide to fire him based on a lot of evidence that you want the investigation to go away. And then on top of that, you, you kind of, you know, dissembled about the reason for firing him. You took advantage of a memo that you asked Rod Rosenstein to write. Then I think that's problematic. And, and I think a prosecutor can make a decent case as to what the real intention was. And remember all those tricky questions about the president's constitutional powers? The president is allowed to fire his FBI director. Can doing so really qualify as obstruction? Here's Matt Zapatowski again. Yeah, so this is an interesting question. Like, the the president unquestionably has the ability to hire and fire his attorney general. He even can do that with his FBI director, even though they're appointed to 10-year terms, he unquestionably has that power. So is it fair to, A, investigate the president for this? Should we be able to even investigate the president for using what is undeniably his power? And then B, if we do decide we can investigate, what can we do about it and where is the line? And Mueller and his team because of, I think, um, this swirling in the, in the ether and President Trump's lawyers raising this, um, they devote a long time to addressing that question. And they come up with, yes, we can investigate the president for these things. And the line is whether he has done these things corruptly. Here's Harvard Law Professor Jack Goldsmith. What does it mean for the president of the United States to corruptly interfere with an investigation since the president under the Constitution is in charge of investigations, he has the executive power. And so the hard question is, what does it mean when a president is accused of firing someone like the FBI director to, um, in what people say is an effort to stymie the investigation, the president is exercising a power that the Constitution gives him. How can he be acting corruptly if he's doing that is the question. It's, in all these debates, no one actually lays out what does it mean 
for a president who has the plenary full authority to fire the FBI director, what does it mean for him to do that corruptly? What if, for example, he thinks Comey is pursuing the Russian investigation and that might embarrass the president and because it's going to be bad for his foreign policy? And it is embarrassment and foreign policy enough of a reason for him to shut down and fire Comey? Mueller identifies motives that are within the president's constitutional powers, reasons that, as a legal matter, are valid to fire Comey. But he notes that there's evidence of a more troubling motivation as well. Other evidence, however, indicates that the president wanted to protect himself from an investigation into his campaign. In addition, the president had motive to put the FBI's Russia investigation behind him. The evidence does not establish that the termination of Comey was designed to cover up a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. As described in Volume 1, the evidence uncovered in the investigation did not establish that the president or those close to him were involved in the charged Russian computer hacking or active measure conspiracies, or that the president otherwise had an unlawful relationship with a Russian official. But the evidence does indicate that a thorough FBI investigation would uncover facts about the campaign and the president personally that the president could have understood to be crimes or would give rise to personal or political concerns. Ultimately, here's Mueller's bottom line. The president's initial reliance on a pretextual justification could support an inference that the president had concerns about providing the real reason for the firing, although the evidence does not resolve whether those concerns were personal, political, or both. In other words, Mueller lays out the evidence. It's up to someone else to decide what it means. As all of this is unfolding, another bombshell drops in the press. On May 11th, Mike Schmidt breaks the story of Trump's request for loyalty from Comey. Donald Trump's personal lawyer has denied that the U.S. president told former FBI director James Comey that he needed and expected loyalty. Here was a president whose campaign, at least, was under investigation getting rid of the top law enforcement official. And that did not look good for the White House and created a huge public relations and perception problem for them. It's in the days after the firing that we start to report on what went on between Comey and Trump. And the first of those stories is about the loyalty dinner and the idea that a president was asking this law enforcement official for him to be his guy. When you looked at all of the pieces of things that were going on at the time, raised all these questions about what Trump was trying to do with his FBI and with Comey. The day after the story breaks, the president tweets, quote, James Comey better hope there are no tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press. Trump writes the tweet on a Friday. Two days pass before Jim Comey jolts awake in the middle of the night with a realization. The president tweeted on Friday after I got fired that I better hope there's not tapes. I woke up in the middle of the night on Monday night because it didn't dawn on me originally that there might be corroboration for our conversation. There might be a tape. When Trump had first asked Comey to let Flynn go, 
the FBI director hadn't seen any way he could prove it. If there are tapes, Comey thinks he can prove what happened. And so he asks a friend to tell his story to the press. And my judgment was I needed to get that out into the public square. And so I asked a friend of mine to share the content of the memo with a reporter. Didn't do it myself for a variety of reasons, but I asked him to because I thought that might prompt the appointment of a special counsel. It turns out Comey's right about that. The White House blindsided tonight as the Department of Justice reveals that they will appoint a special counsel to now oversee the FBI investigation into Russian meddling and any possible collusion. That's next time on The Report. Thank you for listening to part 10 of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The Report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. Production assistance from Shar Dreyer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Margaret Taylor and Gordon All. Special thanks to Matt Zapatowski, Mike Schmidt, Preet Bharara, Josh Campbell, Greg Miller, and Jack Goldsmith, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, and support our mission. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.